0: The gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 9. We're reading verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Father, as we gather in your presence this morning, we recognize that we are not a holy people, but you are gracious, you are full of steadfast love and mercy, and in your son Jesus, you have forgiven us. And so we come today and we desperately need your light and your truth, and we need you to guide us. And so we ask God that you will speak for your servants to listening. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we've sought to familiarize ourselves with the vocabulary and the grammar of the Lord's Prayer, to learn from Jesus the contours and the shape of good prayer. This is certainly not the only prayer we are authorized to say, but it is a prayer that it serves as a model that can guide us into what good communion with God looks like. We've seen that the prayer begins with three petitions, a petition oriented to God's honor, a petition oriented to God's kingdom, a petition oriented to God's will, that God would make all these things happen on the earth as it does in heaven. And then there's a second set of three petitions that turn to our earthly good. The first of those we addressed last week, where we ask God for daily bread, the necessities of life. In this petition, we acknowledge our dependence as creatures, That in him we live and move and have our being. And today we come and recognize another form of dependence, utter dependence upon God. That he must forgive us of a debt that we can never repay ourselves. Forgive us our trespasses. And what Jesus is saying here is that forgiveness is essential. Yes, it is as necessary to life as daily bread is. But when we're honest, we don't necessarily like this request. Sure, all of us like the idea of forgiveness. We know that we have sins and shortcomings, we have failures, and we are filled with unfaithfulness. But what we really struggle with, as sinful human beings, is we struggle with the actual apologizing, the actual confessing, the actual owning in words what we've done wrong. It's not popular with us. It comes with difficulty. And the main question that we need to ask and answer this morning is, why is that? Why do we struggle so deeply with that moment of confession? What are the impediments that encumber us when it comes to asking God for forgiveness? Four things that I'd like to draw your attention to. First, we underestimate the offensiveness of sin. Typically, when we think of sin or wrongdoing, we think of breaking a rule. And we all throughout our lives have had many rules applied to us, and many of those rules are arbitrary and don't really make sense. And so we become accustomed to breaking rules, and we even have a saying, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Breaking a rule is not necessarily that offensive to us. Now, sin is certainly breaking the law of God, and there is something profoundly wrong with that. But when we only conceive of sin as breaking rules or breaking laws, we tend to miss something at the heart of sin. We tend to miss just how personally offensive it really is. But in Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he uses two metaphors that help us with this. In chapter 6 and verse 12 in Matthew's gospel, he first speaks of sin as a debt, something that we owe to someone else. But in the world of the first century, in ancient Palestine where Jesus lived, debt was never just a financial obligation. Debt was always honor that was owed to someone. It pointed to the fact that there was something relationally wrong and broken, And so, debt was something that we had to give to someone when we had broken a relationship and not given them their due. In verses 14 and 15, after Jesus finishes giving the model prayer, he continues to speak about sin, and he actually uses a second metaphor, and it's the word that we translate trespass. Three times in verses 14 and 15, Jesus speaks of trespasses. And trespasses also points us in this direction of understanding that there's a relational component to sin. Because a trespass indicates that we've entered into the property of someone else, and we've taken advantage of them for our own good. This also points to the relational side of sin. And so on both accounts, debts and trespasses— we're pointed to the fact that sin is personally offensive. We have wronged God in a very deep and profound way. Sin breaks relationship. It's a quest on our part to rid ourselves of an authority that is over us and outside of us. Because this is what sin ultimately is. It's a rebellion that seeks after independence, that we become the judge of what is right and wrong. And friends, when we make that judgment, when we want to rid ourselves of God's authority, it is the ultimate personal offense. And when we lose touch with that, when we lose touch with the relational side of sin, it inevitably will never be that big a deal and we'll never really be that concerned with confessing it. But second... We can also become desensitized to sin. As sinners, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are all compromised. Nothing has been left untouched by the presence of sin. When we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that. And when we allow God to search our hearts and our minds, it can be quite discouraging. When we really allow him by his spirit to rummage through the things that we thought about that person when they said or wrote this. The things that we actually did this week that nobody saw. The things that perhaps we said this week that not too many people heard. Things that would, we would be embarrassed by. And when we begin to tabulate up that score, we can become quite discouraged. We feel and we see the pervasiveness of indwelling sin in us. And this revelatory moment, when we feel the weight of our sins, forces us to do something with it. And typically, we do one of two things. One, it is that revelatory moment where we can be most profoundly Christian when we run to Jesus, when we flee to Him for refuge, that He would handle the sins that we can never handle ourselves. And so that feeling of the weight of sin is actually your path to freedom. It's when we are driven to Jesus. But there's a second reaction that can happen when we experience the weight of that sin. We can also desensitize ourselves to it. That is, we simply begin to make light of it. It's actually easy for this to happen because sin is so pervasive. We don't know what to do, we feel paralyzed by it, and so we simply become numb to it. Helmut Thielke, it's a German pastor during the Second World War. He was part of the Confessing Church, and he ministered in the bombed-out city of Stuttgart, and through the most intense parts of the Allied air raids, he was preaching to his congregation on the Lord's Prayer. Beautiful set of sermons. And in his sermon on the forgiveness of sins, he speaks of this danger of desensitizing ourselves to sin. And so he compares it to a phenomena that the congregation was experiencing over and over and over. It was the death notices that were coming home from the German fronts. Listen to what he says. A death notice, which formerly would have troubled us for days... We lay aside with a fleeting pang and go back to our work simply because there are too many of them. Because there were so many death notices, because they were proliferating, they actually became numb to it. And friends, our sins have the same capacity. But this is what we can never allow happen that we have to ask God to make us sensitive and aware that we don't want to grow numb and be desensitized to our sins. When we do, we will always struggle to say, forgive us our trespasses. Third thing, we have a tendency to minimize God's law. Now, this is a very tempting thing for church cultures. What do I mean by that? that we have a tendency to minimize God's law. From reading the Gospels, perhaps you're familiar that Jesus was hardest on one of the most rigorous parts of the church of the first century, the Pharisees. In Matthew's Gospel, there is an intense critique of the Pharisaic community. Now, they were the rank and file, perhaps the dominant religious expression of first century Israel. But if you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, or you make it to chapter 9, or chapter 13, or chapter 23, you will see a very rigorous critique of the Pharisees. But here's the thing. The Pharisees were tithing, morally upright, and faithful people. They had not sold out to the Romans— They argued against the Sadducees and what they thought was encroaching liberal theology. They sought to raise their kids in such a way that they would inherit their legacy of faith and carry it on to a next generation. The Pharisees were a reform movement inside of Israel, seeking for Israel to be faithful to God and to His law and to all of their traditions. It's easy to come down hard ourselves on them because Jesus critiques them but it's really important for us to understand what was happening why was Jesus so hard on the Pharisees one major part of the problem that Jesus confronts with them was their adoption of what we call the oral Torah this was a series of laws that were man-made written by the rabbis and they were written in order to help Israel actually obey the law. And so they were very prescriptive, and they spelled out how you could obey a particular law. Very detailed. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with that oral law. He says, you have heard it said, and he would quote from that oral law. And then he says, but I say to you. And what Jesus critiques is this that in all their man-made prescriptions, they were trying to maximize the law, trying to lay out for people how they could obey it. And Jesus's critique is you've actually minimized it. You've taken the claim of God and you've reduced it down to something less than what it is. And friends, this is what is always so tempting when we feel the weight of our sins, is to minimize actually what we owe God. You see, the Pharisees wanted to make obedience attainable. They were tired of dealing with the constant weight of conviction. And so make it something that you can attain, that you can grasp, but you can do. And Jesus would have none of it. Because always what happens when we minimize our obedience to God and what God asks of us is self-righteousness is never far away. In fact, it's just around the corner. And this is what we find with the Pharisees. They were self-satisfied. They trusted in themselves. They viewed themselves as better than others. And in Matthew 9, we see the example of it. As Jesus calls this tax collector, who was basically a tax gouger, out of his tax booth to follow him, he converts, and there were others who were called sinners converting as well. And the Pharisees could only look at it with scorn, they couldn't see their own sickness. They couldn't see that they needed a physician themselves. Why? Because they'd minimized the law and saw no sin in themselves. And friends, whenever we begin to minimize God's claim on our life, we will lose touch and we'll stifle true confession. Fourth, we struggle with the terms of this simple exchange that Jesus teaches As sinful humans, a free gift is hard to accept. Why is that? It assaults our sense of independence. When someone gives us something and we can give nothing in return, it ultimately is an assault on on ourselves, on who we are. And so we're much more inclined to try to put up some form of collateral for forgiveness. Things that we like to do is make ourselves feel excessively guilty, that if we can make ourselves feel guilty enough, then certainly God will forgive us. Others tend to pile up quiet times, saying, well, this is my way. If I can demonstrate my love for God, then he will really love me. Quiet time's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing. Other people pile up their good works, thinking that if I do this, then certainly I can atone some collateral for the free gift we're prone to want to pay our way out of the debt that we have Jesus confronts this in Luke's gospel in the famous parable of the prodigal son you'll remember that the son requested his inheritance early his father divests from the local community gives the son his share of the inheritance and that danger everyone around them That points to that relational affront that sin is. The son goes off and he wastes the inheritance. He comes to nothing. His life is in rubble, it's totally destroyed. And so he returns, and when he returns to the village, he has concocted a plan. He's going to apologize and he is going to ask his father that he would take him back as a hired worker. That thought in the prodigal was that he wanted to atone. He wanted to make it right with his dad and with the community. And Jesus in the parable explains that God will have nothing to do with this. And that we have to bid farewell to that strategy. Because the father will hear nothing in the parable of the son becoming a hired worker. Rather, he embraces him. He runs out to him and he embraces him and brings him back into the community on his own name and on his own standing. And so the son is brought back into the fellowship on the father's credit. And friends, the father in the parable is our Lord Jesus. He is the good shepherd, he is the one who goes and searches for the coin, he is the father. He is the one who receives us back and pays in his, his, the own price for our reconciliation into the community. He won't allow us to be a hired servant. And so it's our task to embrace the freeness of the gospel, not to then allow that freeness to insult us, to think that we're beneath that, No, that's the path of life. And so embrace the freedom that Jesus gives us when he teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. Many people inevitably may have the question, Chuck, you teach us to say trespasses. I grew up saying debts. Some of you found it ultimately liberating when I allowed you to say trespasses because you've been struggling all your life to say debts. Some of you say debts every week, despite the fact that we've been saying trespasses for six years. And they say, which one is right? Both are. Jesus uses both words. They're both metaphors for sin. And what we want to do is not get lost in debates like that. But we don't want to underestimate the offense of sin. And so whatever metaphor works for you, whether it's debt or trespasses, embrace it. We don't want to become desensitized to sin. That is just growing numb to those things going on in our lives. We don't want to minimalize the command of God. We want to allow it to operate at its maximum for God to put his full claim on us and for us to run to Jesus. And we don't ever want to resist the terms of the gospel that God freely forgives us in Christ. Friends, that's the liberation that comes with this prayer. And let's take full advantage of it. Let's pray. We give thanks, Father, that you are full of steadfast love and mercy, and that you allow us to freely return to you. We wander like lost sheep, but yet you have sent the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus, and he has come and he has died and he has risen. And in him there is righteousness, peace, and forgiveness. And so teach us what it is to daily depend upon him, to flee to him, to find forgiveness, a necessity in life. Allow us to live with a clean conscience before you because of your grace. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.